News. I'm Anthony. And I'm Alex. And my first story today is World News. This is from the BBC.com. And the headline is, Belgian farmer accidentally moves French border. (laughs) (laughs) I think I heard about this. Cracked me up so much. Um, a farmer in Belgium has caused a stir after inadvertently redrawing the country's border with France. <laughs> so good. Um, a local history enthusiast was walking in the forest when he noticed the stone marking the boundary between the two countries had moved about seven and a half feet. I don't know how this person knew this or realized this. They didn't yeah. go into that detail, but they did somehow. Uh, the Belgian farmer, apparently annoyed by the stone in his tractor's path, had moved it inside of French territory. <laughs> so I guess um, this border between those two countries was like established in the 1800s. And these big marker stones were placed in uh, around 1819. Um to like mark the official border between the two countries and they still are there. <laughs> Except this one. <laughs> Except this one like has been shifted. You know. Like I'm sure that nowadays, you know, it's not like that is actually needed to know where the border is technically, right, yeah. but like they're still there and somebody was just like the stones in my way I'm just moving it. It's like <laughs> they moved the official country border stone. It's just like so funny to me. They just made Belgium a little bigger. They just made Belgium <laughs> Yeah, they just they just made Belgium a little bigger. Just moved they just like invaded France a little bit. <laughs> just a minor, just a, a <laughs> sousant of invasion. Yeah. yeah. So, so I think they just moved the stone back now. I oh. think, but they didn't say actually oh, if they, they moved it back. So, <laughs> it might just be moved. So France, France might know. still be smaller. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. My next story is food news. This is from CNN, and this is probably going to sound familiar to anybody who's listened to us for a while, but uh, a bottle of Bordeaux aged in space is expected to sell for $1 million. $1 million. Okay, that's that's a lot of money. Yeah. So this is, I I believe this is the same space-aged wine that we've talked about before. Nice. (laughs) This is just another part of its journey now. Okay. so this is a bottle of Bordeaux wine that it was aged for 14 months on the International Space Station, and it's up for sale. Uh, the Chateau Petru 2000 was part of an experiment carried out by startup Space Cargo Unlimited to see how conditions in space affect wine. Auction House Christie's said in a statement that it is offering the bottle for immediate sale rather than at auction, and the proceeds will be used to fund future space missions. Uh, That's nice. I mostly included this person because I like their name. Tim Triptree, <laughs> spelled exactly how you think it sounds, like the word trip and the word tree. Um, Tim Tiptree, or Triptree, gosh, it's hard to say. Uh, Christie's International Director of Wine and Spirits told CNN the sale is expected to make in the region of $1 million. We've had quite a lot of inquiries, he said. This is just a unique piece of space history. Uh, they also said that a regular earthbound bottle of the same vintage would cost around $6,000, like, on its own. Like, this oh. particular kind of wine, because it's apparently very fancy wine. 
So like it's a six thousand dollar wine anyway. It's a six thousand dollar bottle of wine anyway. Why is that the one they took to space? I wonder. I mean, I guess it's really good if you're able to charge that kind of money for it. Uh-huh. Um, the bottle is presented in a trunk, custom made by Le Atelier Victor, along with a decanter, glasses, and a corkscrew made from a meteorite. <laughs> So over the top. So they're at least kind of justifying the million dollars you're spending, I guess. Um, The trunk will also contain a bottle of this wine that has remained on Earth, so that the bottle, uh, so that the buyer can compare the taste of the two, which I think is kind of a smart way to do it. Yeah. Um, This is one of twelve bottles sent into space in November of 2019. Again, I think this is the bottles we've talked about (laughs) before, Um, but it's the only one of the twelve that will be put up for sale. Eight will be kept for further research, and three have already been opened for tasting. Um, and they also they talked about the people who did that tasting of the ones they've already opened. Okay. Uh, in March, a group of experts were invited to taste the space wine <laughs> alongside another glass of the same variety that had stayed on Earth uh, before being told which was which. Okay. Uh, one member of the group, wine writer Jane Anson, said that its adventure above the stratosphere added about two to three years maturity to the drink. So apparently okay. they were able to tell a difference. Uh, she said, I found there was a difference in both color and aromatics and also in taste. So I guess in everything about it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, apparently being in space for a while makes a difference for the wine. I don't know. Uh it still seems wow. like too much money. <laughs> <laughs> so question. So if you had that, if you somehow came by that whole kit with the meteorite corkscrew and all that stuff and you, you owned that, would you drink the wine or would you like save it for a while or forever? That's a good question. Um, I, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's it's hard, right? My answer like, my answer changes depending though on like whether I'm a person whether I'm me that's getting this or I'm me but with a bunch of money. <laughs> I was thinking it, like if it's, it's just me, you. Like okay, you somehow magically me, have it. You didn't have I to pay it for free. It. Okay. Yeah. It's not like I'm somebody with so much money that a million dollars is just something I spend on a weekend. Yeah, yeah. No, no, okay. no, no. I was thinking like you just have it magically for no Gosh. for for free and you're still you. <laughs> is it bad my first thought was to resell it <laughs> you know what that's probably the right answer because <laughs> it's like i don't know i would be curious what it tastes like but not i don't know but if it's actually the, worth that much money it's like the money is probably more worth it i'm getting like overwhelmed taste. by the hypothetical like responsibility of having this wine <laughs> I so know. i just want to get rid of it <laughs> The decision is too much. Yeah, You're I don't just like. I don't want it because I'd be curious what it tastes like, but I also don't want to. The knowing yeah. that it's worth that much money, like ingesting it, just seems I know it's like just the like wrong yeah, because <laughs> yeah, it's like a weird, like something that costs that much. Yeah, like a bottle of wine does not let you know what I mean. Like if you drink the bottle of wine, it's like that is so quickly just done. Yeah. Right. And it's it's like one of those things. Like if I had it, I feel like I would just never drink. I would just like keep it and be like, "That's the space the space the wine space that I wine. got." You know, but it, but I would never like, drink it. But then it's like, but you then but what's then the point I just of have having this it? Space wine right? <laughs> for some reason. There's no point in having it if you never drink it either. It's like this weird like philosophical. Yeah, I'm gonna, debate I'm you have gonna to go with. with I'm gonna sell it. <laughs> okay. 
I think I think that's a good answer, and um, I I approve that answer. <laughs> My next story is animal news. <laughs> This is from sciencenews.org, and the headline is, Mantis Shrimp Start Practicing Their Punches at Just Nine Days Old. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, the fastest punches in the animal kingdom probably belong to the mantis shrimp, and they may begin unleashing these attacks a little more than a week after hatching, when they have just started to hunt prey, a new study shows. Wow. Yeah, so you're familiar with, like, the mantis shrimp punch, right? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, good. They're really cool. And they yeah. make like a really loud sound when they do it because it's like, like the crack. displacement of the water. It's almost like um, lightning displacing air. Same idea. Yeah. And that's why it results in that like sound. It's really cool. It's so cool. It's such a cool thing. It also like heats the water to like an insane amount or something because of how fast oh, it yeah. moves. Oh yeah. Doesn't it like boil the water in yeah, front of them or something? Yeah, it's very like, strange. Like, I don't know how. I, I, <laughs> I do not understand the mechanics of it. I only know the results apparently. So I actually learned the mechanics Oh, of right. the punch through this article. Oh, nice. And it's like, um, which I think, yeah, I actually, I, yes, I did I explain it in my notes here. Okay, so for the first time, research, researchers have peered through the transparent exoskeletons of the young mantis shrimp to see the inner mechanisms of their powerful weapons in motion. Uh, researchers reported online um, April 29th in the Journal of Experimental Biology. The findings are letting scientists in on hidden details of how the uh, speedy armaments work. Um, so mantis shrimp are equipped with special par- pairs, special pairs, I'm sorry, of arms that can explode with bullet-like accelerations to strike at speeds of up to roughly 110 kilometers per hour. It's so which is crazy. Like, insane. Like, it's yeah. just like, what? how is that even possible that an animal can do that? So previously, scientists deduced these weapons act much like crossbows. So, like... Basically, there's like a latch that holds the arm in place, and then, like, they can release the latch, and the energy gets released. So it's almost like a spring-loaded situation. So it's a, like their arm has all that potential energy, and they have something they can use to just release it. Yes, that's so cool. Yes, and also weird. <laughs> it is, yeah. So that that's how. So it's, it works a little bit differently than normal, like musculature. Um, so. You know, but before this current study, the um, researchers didn't know what at what age the mantis shrimp first begin like being able to do that. Um, so that was part of what they were studying was like when do they develop that and like how exactly does it work at a young age and stuff. So what they did was collect a host of microscopic creatures off boat docks in Hawaii, um, and then they sifted out uh, larvae of the mantis shrimp there. Like, and I guess these are like the size of a grain of rice, like really, really, really small. Oh, wow. So they just kind of like found them in the water mm-hmm. and then they glued them onto toothpicks. Oh no. And then recorded their punches in high speed video. So they somehow like got super zoomed in on these like little, like rice size, like, yeah. And then could like videoed them punching things. At the nine days after hatching, why age. were they glued to toothpicks? I, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> that sounds horrible. <laughs> because I think because they're so small that they had to do that in order to keep them on camera. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, probably to because yeah, they keep were like the cam- zoomed in, like keep them in one place. So that yeah, to keep them in like one spot mm-hmm. while they were like filming them. That makes me sad for some reason. 
Yeah. I wasn't thinking about that when I was <laughs> first reading this, but yeah, I don't know. Um, so yeah, they, they, uh, they recorded it. They have it on camera and they know that they can do this after only when they're nine days old, these shrimp. So nice. It's like really amazing. Yeah. Those things, they're such a wonder. They're also like beautiful. Yeah. Aren't they like all the, the different colors ones, and stuff? Yeah. They're very colorful. I think there's different varieties of them, mm. but there are some really, really colorful varieties. Yeah, they're a really cool animal. Yeah. Of course, it's a sea animal. All the and all the, all the ocean creatures. creatures are amazing. All the coolest creatures are in the ocean. <laughs> they kind of really are. Mm-hmm. My next story is world news. This is from Architectural Digest. Uh, the headline is suspended 115 feet in the air. The world's first floating pool is unveiled in London. I saw a picture of this. It is so cool looking. I yeah yeah I <laughs> I almost was like, should I bring this because it's such a visual thing? Like you almost really need to see it <laughs> to understand what we're talking about. But uh, no, but it looks so cool though. It looks really cool. So this is another one where I'm going to be like, you need to go. <laughs> Look this story yeah. up when we're, when we're done. But uh, uh, if you search for a sky pool, you'll find it. <laughs> um, on May 19th, a pool positioned nearly 115 feet in the air opens to residents of the Embassy Gardens Apartments in London. Uh, it was built when the owners of the building wanted to include a pool in the luxury apartments but didn't have space for one. <laughs> so <laughs> they came up with a very novel solution to that. Um so it's an 82-foot-long heated pool, which stretches across two flat roofs of the Embassy Gardens' prominent legacy buildings and is likely the world's largest single piece of load-bearing acrylic. So it's setting a lot of records, I think. Yeah. I, I don't think there's a pool like this. Wow. Um, the structure, which was built in, in uh, Colorado, transported to Texas, and then shipped across the Atlantic on a three-week journey, is oh, wow. completely transparent making it appear like a rectangular glass box of water floating in midair. Um, which, like we said, looks really cool. You yeah. need to look at these pictures. They're <laughs> awesome. Uh, while both ends of the basin resemble a traditional uh, outdoor swimming pool, the central section is suspended in the sky, courtesy of its invisible steel frame. They didn't really clarify what that means. Um, I'm not sure how you, uh, how you acquire invisible steel. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't get... I imagine that. maybe it's like it means hidden. hidden. Yeah, yeah, it's somehow not. hidden into the into the structure so that you can't invisible like materials. you can't like see a steel frame necessarily. Right. It just but looks it's there. like a giant piece of acrylic filled with water. Yeah, uh, between these two buildings, um, the engineers and architects who designed it decided on an eight-inch thick acrylic frame with a nearly twelve-inch thick base. That's about 10 feet deep, like the whole basin is about 10 feet deep, mm. and it weighs approximately 50 tons. Wow. Just, wait, is this with, without the water I in it? I think that's without the water in it. Wow. So they, didn't, they didn't say specifically, but I think that is just like the structure itself. Yeah. Which is crazy, given that it's suspended. It's like suspended um, in there. Yeah. I, I don't know if I described it well, but it's like, basically picture two towers next to each other. And this is kind of straddled between the two of them. It's like built into the tops of both. Um, 
So unfortunately for anybody who wants to try this floating sky pool, it's only open to Eagle Club members, which is an exclusive social club uh, available only to Embassy Gardens residents and their guests. So okay. you either need to move there or you need to make friends with somebody who lives there. <laughs> uh, so Mission accepted. Yeah. I, I need to do this because I want to try it, but also I don't know if I want to try but also it because at the same I feel time, like it would be so scary. Yeah, I, I would like to like see it in real life one day maybe, yeah. but not go in the pool. I would like to see, scary. Yeah, I'd like to see it from one of the sides of the pool or from yeah. underneath the pool. Yeah, from or like underneath. actually standing slightly off to the side. Yeah. Not, <laughs> not directly <laughs> not underneath. Not directly just underneath, like kind just of in case. Under, but just to yeah. the side. Like So just, if the pool were to fall down, it wouldn't fall on top of you. Exactly. The world's largest piece of acrylic that weighs several tons yes. would be on you. <laughs> that yeah. weighs 50 tons. Yeah, I don't, uh, <laughs> don't want that falling on my head. Thank you. But it looks really cool. It does look really cool. I just, I love the idea of the conversation that led to this happening. Like at the beginning, like <laughs> you're like, oh, the people in these apartment buildings wanted a pool, but they didn't have room for it. They were like, what if we just built a pool on the roof that went across those two yeah. buildings? How cool would <laughs> that be? We just be? put a pool in yeah. the air. We got we just air. Put it in the air. <laughs> uh, and then they all laugh and the laughter dies down. And then there's like a pause and someone goes, no, actually, yeah, no, wait, actually we could do that. We could actually do that. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, I mean, it's, it's a feat of engineering. It's very cool that they were even able to, to make something like this happen. Yeah. And, but yeah, again, look up the story. It's so cool. Um, it's beautiful. I, Mm-hmm. really kind of want to see it in person, especially before it gets all gross, because you know that's going to be a pain in the... Yeah, how are they going to clean that a thing? A pain to clean. Like, the inside is one thing, but the outside? How are you going to clean the outside Oh, yeah, wait a minute. How are you going to clean... How are they going to clean the outside of it? How are they going to clean, like, the bottom of the outside yeah, of this pool? I don't know. It's going to get grody. It's it like really outside. Is. I mean, it's like when you get, like, a new shower door, and you're like, oh, it's a clear shower door. This looks really nice. And then, like, a week later, you're like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that might happen. Oh, no, happen. this is terrible now. <laughs> That's, like, I don't know. This is good. I feel like this is going to look really nice for, like, a couple of weeks, and then it's going to be nasty. <laughs> well, hopefully they thought about that ahead of time and came up with some solution. Uh, <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. My next story is more animal news. <laughs> this is from... Patch.com, which I think is just like a local news website, actually. Oh, okay. The headline is, Rare Calico Lobster Rescued from Seafood Restaurant. (laughs) This is the second oddly colored lobster I think we've talked about. Do you remember Banana? Yeah, wait, the yellow... Banana, the yellow lobster. The yellow lobster, yeah. Yeah. This is, yes, this is the second time. This is a calico lobster. (laughs) Welcome to our lobster podcast. This is also the second crustacean I'm talking about today (laughs) on this episode, (laughs) which is a weird connection, but uh, yeah. Um, I actually, I did a a little bit of side research about colored lobsters and how rare they are um, today, and that's, it's fascinating. There's calico, yellow, blue, um... I'm now forgetting what the other one is. There's one that's like a, it's <laughs> like it. half and half. There's like, it's like black and red with like a line down the middle. Oh, cool. And that's like, it, they're, they're all super rare. Like all these ones, are, it's like the one in like 30 million. Is that like a chimera where it's yes. like, it's yes, that's like what it's called. Chimera yeah. lobster. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, so calico lobsters are very rare. Um, one was discovered at a red lobster restaurant in, 
Manassas, Virginia. That's not Virginia. a red lobster. That's a calico that's lobster. That's not a red lobster. That's a calico lobster. <laughs> Get out lobster. of here. <laughs> we only serve red lobsters here at Red Lobster. <laughs> Um, calico lobsters are considered the third rarest type of lobster in the world at one in 30 million um, wow. is the chances of, of them occurring, according to a red lobster st- spokesperson <laughs> who is assumingly I mean, an, an expert on rare say, lobsters. I guess, they're, I guess they would be experts. Red lobster donated the animal, affectionately called freckles, to the Virginia Living Museum. There, freckles will join other animals as part of the museum's mission to educate visitors about animals and habitats native to Virginia. Although, was this lobster from Virginia? I was going to say, wait, are they... I don't think so. Are they native to Virginia? That's just this place's mission. They just have... It's just an animal, you know... And now, So now it's their mission is things native to that area and also this lobster. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, okay, also... <laughs> We got another fun name today, Chris Crippen. Chris Crippen and Tim Triptree. Yes, <laughs> they should get. They should be friends. Yeah. Um, Chris Crippen is the Virginia Living Museum's senior director of animal welfare and conservation. And last week, he drove to the Manassas Red Lobster to bring freckles back to his new home. <laughs> and he says this, We take great pride in our conservation efforts and strive to create strong partnerships in our community. We see this as an opportunity to not only educate the public about the rare color scheme of this particular animal, but also about sustainable seafood practices and the importance of conservation efforts in the American lobster fishery. So... I don't know. Uh, calico lobsters rarely survive in the wild, according to this museum, um, because the, their unique coloring makes them more susceptible to predators. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. So, um, yeah, so that probably makes them even more rare if they're like not going to survive <laughs> a long time, even if they when they do exist. But right. here's a picture of the calico lobster freckles. Aw, freckles. Yeah, that's a cool. That is a cool coloration, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's cool. It's just like it's basically like it looks like it has like a yellow base with like blackish like spots all over mm-hmm. it, kind of. So yeah, kind of like a jaguar, but with closer together spots. Yeah, kind of like that. <laughs> <laughs> jaguar lobster. Jaguar That's lobster. what they should call it. That's way better. My next story is space news. This is from CBS News. It's not more space wine, I promise. Okay. Um, but the headline might scare you. Uh, oh. Rocket debris from China's space station launch is hurtling back to Earth, and scientists aren't sure where it will land. <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, no. Uh, yeah. Uh... I would s- this is the point where I would say if that headline is misleading or anything, but it's not. <laughs> um, it's um, pretty much matter of fact. Okay. Um, so a huge piece of space junk is about to make an uncontrolled reentry back into Earth's, at- Earth's atmosphere, threatening to drop debris on a number of cities around the world in the coming days. It's left over from China's first module for its new space station, and no one knows where it will land. Um, I guess I should say that's a little misleading because it's saying like it's going to drop debris on a number of cities. It's possible that it could, just because there's such a wide variety of places it could land. Oh. But statistically speaking, it's unlikely. Um, So the 46,000-pound Chinese rocket Long March 5B recently launched the first module for the country's new space station into orbit. After the core separated from the rest of the rocket, it should have followed a predetermined flight path back 
uh, into the ocean. But now scientists have little idea where it will land as it orbits the planet unpredictably every 90 minutes at about 17,324 miles per hour while slowly losing altitude. (laughs) So they just don't know when it's going to, like, enter the Earth's atmosphere and just hit someplace? They don't know yet. Um so, I, why do I always assume that all the NASA scientists and everyone can just do cert, like that type of math like very quickly nowadays? Think, and you would think they I, would just well, know. Well, I think the reason is because it's going so fast. Like, and they're just, and I don't know if they know like where it started. Like, I don't know if they have like all the like data all the they need. Yeah, all the to parameters figure it out. to figure out where it will go. <laughs> oh, no. Um, so, oh, no. Lieutenant Colonel uh, Angela Webb of the U.S. Space Command's Public Affairs uh, Department, I guess, uh, says, U.S. Space Command is aware of and tracking the location of the Chinese Long March 5B in space, but its exact entry point into the Earth's atmosphere cannot be pinpointed until within hours of its reentry, which is expected around May 8th, which I think is Saturday. Yeah. Right? Is it? Maybe? Yes. Yes. Um, so, soon. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> so, despite much speculation, its fast, be- fast speed makes the landing place of the debris nearly impossible to predict. It has the potential to land... This is funny to me for some reason. It has the potential to land in the U.S., Mexico, Central America, South America, Africa, India, China, or Australia. <laughs> it's like the whole Which world. is like everywhere except Europe, I guess. <laughs> It's like <laughs> everywhere that's not Europe or Russia, basically. Yeah, or Antarctica. Or Antarctica. Um, so okay. So this here, here's where the article tries to calm your nerves. Uh, most likely, it will land in the ocean, which makes up over seventy percent of the planet. If you yeah. somehow forgot that, I don't know why they felt the need to include that statistic. But uh, <laughs> or it'll land in an uninhabited, uninhabited region. Um, however, as it's one of the largest spacecraft to ever uh, re-enter the Earth's atmosphere uncontrollably there is still a small risk that debris will land in a metropolitan area. Um, but the chances are super low. <laughs> like, okay. don't even worry about it, guys. It's probably just going to land in the ocean somewhere. Um, but how big is the debris, though? Well, they said it was 46,000 pounds, or the rocket was. Oh. Like, the whole rocket was. But that's most of what would have fallen back. So so they don't know. Okay, so they don't really because I was assuming I think it was going to break up into all little pieces. I think it's already. Right? Bro- I think it's broken up. Oh, into okay. pieces Already. Okay. Um, it's like if one of the pieces lands on your house. Yeah. Is that like it broke a hole through your whole house? It's probably yeah. I guess it depends on the size of the piece. Right. And how fast? Like, I don't think it's going to slow down or anything, right? So why the rocket is coming down in an uncontrolled manner is unclear. Most rockets routinely fire their engines uh, to target re-entries over the Southern Pacific to ensure debris can't land on populated areas. Um, but they don't know why this one. I guess China hasn't really communicated clearly why this happened. Oh. Um, and this article also pointed out the most significant re-entry breakup over a populated area was the shuttle Columbia, which entered uh, Earth's atmosphere in February of 2003. When 200,000 pounds of spacecraft broke up over Texas, a significant amount of debris hit the ground, but there were no injuries. Um, So that's like twice as much. No, that's like four times as much debris as we're expecting with this one, and no one was hurt. So just from a statistical standpoint, I think 
it's probably going to be fine, but it is mm-hmm. kind of, you hear like, oh, there's a spaceship like falling apart and we don't know where it's going to land. Yeah. It is kind of unnerving. Uh, yeah. But yeah, they also gave some examples of other ones that just landed in the ocean and were totally fine. So we'll probably, yeah, it'll probably okay, just land but, in the uh, ocean. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see. Uh, look out for that on Saturdays when I think they, they think they'll be able to predict where it'll actually end up. So, okay. <laughs> Crossing my fingers. It just goes in the ocean. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully it goes in the ocean and everyone's okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's something that doesn't happen every day. All right, it's time for breaking news. The part of the show where Anthony and I look up stories that just happened today or were just posted today and we read them to you on the fly. Mantis shrimp. Ready, set, go! go! Okay, I found this on UPI.com. And the headline is, Animal rescuers in Iowa find reported loose gator was a plush toy. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is so good after that croissant after story. After the croissant story? <laughs> yeah. It's like there a nice a, follow-up. There was this life-sized plush alligator. <laughs> Somebody left it in a parking okay, lot. Okay, I could see, though, from yeah, a distance. Yeah, see that, that like, looks, from a distance. Yeah. It kind of looks real, but yeah. it would be, like, just absolutely still. But gators do that, I guess. They just, like, Oh, yeah, out. they just, they just, will. uh, they'll just sun themselves. Yeah, so that was what was happening. So this, this plush toy, somebody left it in a parking lot, I guess. Um, in Idaho. And it was in Idaho, which is, like, so, which is, like, there aren't gators there, so. Nope. Um, in, in like an apartment complex, I guess. And some residents of the apartment complex saw it and they called animal services (laughs) who turned up and then it was like a plush toy, (laughs) which is just funny, but yeah. It's really good. Do they have any idea like how it got there? Um, I don't, well, this article at least did not say, I mean, it's just, I mean, I was just curious if like it was a prank or if somebody had. Like, just left oh. it behind somehow or what? Yeah, I didn't say. I mean, I was assuming somebody just, like, left it behind somehow by accident, but they didn't yeah. say. Oh, still great. Pretty funny, though. It's pretty, like, <laughs> Iowa. I don't think they have gators in Iowa, so it's not, like, like in Florida or something, at least, like. Right, that would be like. It would be like, oh, okay, there's a gator. And then, a, but they also wouldn't call it. But actually, they probably wouldn't even call it animal like, control. They'd be like, oh, there's a gator there's in the parking gator, lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, I found this on Variety, which is a very... I Hmm. I don't know if I've ever found anything there. Uh, Game of Thrones prequel, House of the Dragon at HBO, reveals first uh, official first look photos. (gasps) So we got some pictures of some people dressed up as the cast of this new prequel series, which I thought these all got canceled for some reason. Like, I thought they yeah, were making a bunch they? of Game of Thrones spinoffs and they all got canceled, but it sounds like they're all back on. Oh, they're all... I thought there was just... There's was there couple, just the one show that's well, back? Well, this one's it? definitely back, but there's apparently multiple that are in discussion. Oh. Okay. Um, I'm all for it. So, yeah, they revealed the first official images of this one, House of the Dragon, which is set a few hundred years prior to the events of Game of Thrones and tells the story of House Targaryen and the Targaryen Civil War that uh, became known as the Dance of the Dragons. Uh, the photos feature Emma Darcy as Princess Rhaenyra Targaryen and Matt Smith as Prince Damon Targaryen. Um, Matt Smith's the only actor from this that I actually recognize from anything. He's one of the doctors from Doctor Who and other Oh, things. yeah. I knew that name sounded familiar. Yes. Um, okay. Uh, Steve Toussaint as 
Lord Corliss Valerion, which I think is a house that we haven't actually encountered, hmm. um, and Olivia Cook as Alison Hightower and Reese Ephons as Otto Hightower, which I think is another, another house? house we don't necessarily know about. Again, this is like hundreds of years before Game of Thrones, so there's probably several houses yeah. that have come and gone. We're going to have to learn all the new names. All the new, all the new, all the new proper nouns that come with, learning, pra- with Game <laughs> yeah. of Thrones. Uh, I remember I've just recently rewatched the first season of Game of Thrones, and it is kind of funny how dense it is with just like names and places and like fake words for things that are just that have a real word in English yeah. and they use a different one. In <laughs> yeah. Just learning the vocabulary. Um, HBO has given House of the Dragon a 10 episode order with an eye towards a 2022 debut. So oh, wow. next year, that's not that That's far pretty away. soon, yeah. Um, the start of production was announced on April 26th, so they're currently making it. Um, it's based on George R.R. R. Martin's book Fire and Blood, which apparently he wrote. I didn't realize he had written a prequel to Game of Thrones oh. without finishing the series. Oh, I didn't, I didn't realize that either. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, and it's been revealed in recent weeks that are that there are currently multiple shows set within the Game of Thrones universe in the works at HBO and HBO Max. Um, yeah, they mentioned one other that was based on something else that like some short stories that Martin had written before. Hmm. Um, yeah, I am all for more content in this universe. Yeah, same. Uh, I really am. In spite of all of its like late season shortcomings, Game of Thrones is still one of my favorite shows of all time. It's still phenomenal. Yep. Um, I agree. So I know a lot of people have just abandoned it, but no, <laughs> it's a great I, it's story. Still, I mean, I've watched now the first three seasons plus a couple episodes from season four again, and they hold up. And it's it's such a good show. It's just so it's so much fun and also incredibly dark. But yeah, but. <laughs> Just the, the the writing and the storytelling. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, even the of the story. The acting, I mean, like, like, and I know obviously the show is a little bit not exactly exactly what the books are, but yeah. But um, the just, show does a really good job in the early seasons. Yeah, like, you it can't, really you does. Can't deny that it's really high class storytelling, and it's great. Also, the um, music is phenomenal, and the music is phenomenal. Raman Jawadi, yeah. <laughs> of course, you know the name. I, yeah. Yes, I know. I know the composer. Yeah, <laughs> he also wrote all the music for Westworld too. Oh, nice. If you didn't know that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, no, he. I, he's great. I actually listen to all of his stuff on Spotify. I have all the Game of Thrones soundtracks, like favorited and stuff. Very good. It's great. Anyway, yeah, this is exciting. I will watch it. Yes, me too. All right, that's our show. Thanks for listening, everybody. We post episodes every Friday. And as always, the links to this week's stories will be in the episode description. You can subscribe to Knickknack News on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. And you can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash News, on Twitter at at News, and on Instagram at News. All right, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.